BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين السلام عليكم everyone and uh, thank you for coming along this evening uh, especially in exam term uh, many people are revising many people are in the thick of exams uh, coursework deadlines but this is no ordinary speaker um, our guest today is uh, uh, very hotly anticipated, I must tell you, here in Cambridge. Uh, we're delighted, thrilled and honoured to have Paul Williams uh, of the famous Blogging Theology uh, YouTube account. Paul, you are most welcome. Alhamdulillah. Thank you very much indeed. For, yeah, uh, I enjoy saying that because you usually say that to your guests. So. <laughs> yeah. Uh, just, just to give an outline of the event, we're going to talk for about 45 minutes and then we'll have a break to pray usr and then we'll come back for a general audience Q&A. Now, uh, those who are on the Islamic Society group chat, there is a uh, form that you can submit your questions on, but we will also be taking in-person questions by uh, raising your hand, and I'd actually encourage that because uh, it's a bit nicer. Just to also inform you, this event is being recorded. Now, Paul really needs no intro, but I'm going to give him one anyway. Uh, Paul is well known because of his YouTube channel, which has been uh, a global sensation, mashallah. Uh, currently 235,000 followers and counting, and those are subscribers uh, across the world. And I think it's fair to say that blogging theology's success is a remarkable phenomenon, because not only do you produce videos on uh, fascinating theological, historical, social, political topics, uh, but you also interview some of the world's leading Islamic scholars, uh, Christian theologians, <coughs> academics and thinkers on all sorts of issues. And the topics you discuss are extremely wide-ranging as well and often complex and intellectual. Uh, some of these thinkers would otherwise never have their work exposed mm. to such a large audience. Mm. So blogging theology has become a very uh, 
useful and valuable force in Muslim discourse. And it also shows that there is an appetite for this kind of content. Uh, it's not that every, everyone doesn't just want to see sort of uh, prank videos and food challenges on YouTube. It, your, your work does have mass appeal. So I want to explore uh, the blogging theology phenomenon. Uh, starting with a bit about you. So you, you grew up in Essex. Was religion a part of your childhood? Well, thank you for that um, slightly hyperbolic introduction. Um, <laughs> um, I'm very humbled to be here um, with, with you. Thank you very much indeed for the invitation. Um, I'm aware of it. It is an honour and a distinction to be invited here, so I, I'm uh, certainly unworthy of that. So thank you for the, uh, those words. Um, yeah, another embarrassing admission. I'm an Essex boy. Uh, so I was born in um, Leon Sea, which is a seaside village uh, on the south coast of Essex, into a, a very... Um, I was going to say boring, but very average, predictable, white, middle-class, uh, nominally Christian family um, where nothing much happened uh, in the town. It's a, I quickly discovered that um, I was not really happy there, and uh, I moved to London as soon as I could for the bright lights and uh, some more interesting uh, life. And, um, but no, I had a nominally Christian upbringing. Um, I remember being an atheist at school because I was just a rebellious frame of mind, I guess. Um, but I've always been, I was at school, I remember not doing very well academically in terms of my formal studies, but being passionately interested in philosophy privately. Um, and that didn't have any um, connection with what I was studying. Um, so I started reading Plato, his dialogues when I was about 15. And, uh, and, uh, and that's never stopped. And uh, people often say to me, Paul, you know, what are the tips about how do you read books? You know, what, what, what's, how do you motivate yourself? And I said, I have absolutely no idea. For me, eating, breathing, reading, it's all the same thing. It's, it's part of the expression of one's life. Um, it's just part of who I am. So I don't actually have any advice. I don't know what to say other than um, enjoy it. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I left um, South End the larger borough area pretty quickly when I was about 17, 18 actually. So what were your views on religion growing up if you uh, were nominally Christian mm. uh, but actually atheist, reading a lot of philosophy, what, what did you think of yeah, that? I, no, I went through a Marxist phase, I remember being passionately interested right. in uh, Marxism, I guess it's pretty cliche, I know, but, um, no, but he taught me a bit about history and again philosophy, so I discovered Hegel inevitably and and um, some contemporary Marxist writers, uh, particularly the English Marxist historian E.P. Uh, e. Thompson, um, who uh, I still have an enormous amount of respect for. Um, but uh, the religion didn't play any part of it at all. Um, but I, I remember um, when I moved to London, and I, I went to an all-night party in South London, and driving back one, cycling back one Sunday morning to North London, um, seeing a, a rather beautiful what I would now call a sort of classically designed Anglican church in Islington and just being struck by this building on a Sunday morning um, aesthetically and decided to go in because the door was open not for any religious purpose uh, and and having a um, an encounter which with some <coughs> presence which is impossible to put into words like these kinds of experiences often are but it was a powerful experience, an external presence or power, a little bit overpowering of love. Um, that's how I felt it. Um, and it was unexpected and unwelcome 
because I didn't go there, there for anything weird like that. So I, I, I uh, felt I had to leave pretty quickly, otherwise I would probably break down. It was quite emotional. Um, so what was that about? So that, that, you know, because of that experience, I decided to go back the following week for a repeat encounter, and of course nothing happened. Um, but no, but that, that was a pivotal moment uh, uh, of my spiritual journey. I thought, wow, maybe that was a spiritual experience. So because of my nominal Christian background, that meant, well, maybe I should look into Christianity, of course, knowing precisely nothing about Islam, of course. Um, and so I got a copy of the Bible and started to read it. And, and that began a journey which led in about a year or two later, a year and a half later, to becoming an evangelical Christian, of all things, in my local Baptist church. Um, in London and why, why that church because I, I found in that particular fellowship in that particular church a great sense of, of love a lovingness of fellowship a great sense of sincere caring and compassion that was shown but it was also incorporated a lot of beliefs about the deity of Jesus and the inerrancy of scripture and the atonement and the trinity and so on which went with it and I kind of bought the whole thing so at this time were you reading a lot about say goodbye to your credit card rewards greedy corporate mega stores led by walmart and target are pushing for a law in congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets the durbin marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it if you love your credit card rewards tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards tell them to oppose the durbin marshall credit card bill theology uh, not in, uh, not initially I, I was still passionately interested in, in, in philosophy but um, I, I began to be interested in theology that became the next uh, thing because in reading the Bible the Bible has a lot of theology in it so um, I turned to biblical scholars and theologians for uh, sort of intellectual meat to come to terms with what was going on here so that was the beginning of my interest in theology I think Christian theology well, that's interesting. And what, what did you think, if anything, about Islam at the time? I thought nothing whatsoever about Islam. Um, uh, I, I think my initial spiritual interest was Christianity, and I was particularly interested in Eastern mysticism because, because it was simply there uh, for me to look at. But Islam wasn't on my radar at all, actually. I don't know why. Um, maybe because of my background. Um, it's simply... Yeah, if, if the question why Islam would have been, well, why not Zoroastrianism, or why not Shintoism, or why not Sikhism, it, it would have been that kind of question rather than... So that, that came later. And how, how did that come? Oh, right. Well, <laughs> um, well fast-forwarding a rather uninteresting story uh, by a number of years, um, I started to read the Bible and encountered quite innocently various perplexing questions uh, and issues which rocked my faith. and. Um, and I, t I turned to scholars, uh, um, books for answers, and oftentimes it made the situation worse. Uh, there were verses in the Bible that appeared to question the divinity of Christ, where Jesus states that he's not God or not divine. And they're there, I mean, they're real verses. Um, and that was, of course, problematic. <laughs> so off I go to biblical scholars for help. I need to find that, yep, the verses really do say that, and it's not the devil trying to twist my mind to get me to disbelieve. And um, So that wasn't very helpful, and I discovered even more problems because scholars obviously had been doing their stuff, and there were issues I hadn't known about. and So it kind of got worse, actually. Um, I ended up being quite kind of uh, split in my mentality between 
continuing to formally believe and practice as a believing Christian on the one hand, but on the other hand, pursuing a, a line of study and thought which was systematically questioning some fundamental aspects of my faith. Right. And I didn't know how to escape that. It was just a twin track. And it was calling out a psychological tension. It was actually quite unpleasant. And very private, because I tried to share one of these, one or two of these issues at the church, but they were dismissed as, um, as non-issues. Yeah, they, they were simply... We didn't see the same evangelical church. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, they were not equipped to deal with these questions. Now, looking back now, I understand why, because they were, bless them, they were fundamentalist Christians. And, by definition, they didn't deal with critical questions well, that they would deflect them. Um, I didn't understand that at that time, at least not in the sense I do now. Um, but at the same time also, after several years, I was becoming increasingly Islamophobic. Um, and this is because where I live in London, in, in Maida Vale, um, which is quite a nice part of Westminster, and uh, and by the, Harrow, uh, by the Edgware Road, I mean. And, a lot of Arabs lived and live in that area, and they, they were coming coming up further and further up the Edgware Road towards my area. And um, I thought they were Muslims, but of course most are, but a lot weren't. A lot of these are Lebanese, for example, who are Christians. But I didn't know that, I just assumed they were all Muslims, uh, um, being completely ignorant. So in my own mind, privately, I was becoming, as a, a fundamentalist Christian, uh, I, I saw what I perceived to be the encroaching presence of Islam ever more so into my area, my area, in inverted commas. This is how I perceived it. Do you, do you think media coverage played a role at this time? Mm, that's a question. Um, I think my Christian context was the predominant factor, right. actually. Okay. Uh, because, yes, uh, I think that the, yeah. Basically, Islam was demonized in that context. So I would say the Christian theological context was much more relevant. Right. I mean, I've never been an avid reader of the Daily Mail or anything like that, so I wasn't likely to get or Sky News or Fox or something, but I, it was more from that context. Um, so um, I didn't kind of manifest my Islamophobia in any way that I recall. I mean, I didn't go out and do terrible things. It was just in my head. Um, but it did, it did begin to alarm me. I mean, I began to alarm myself by the amount of fear and worry, and I wondered how I should deal with this. I remember, uh, you know, expressing this to some of my fellow Christian uh, friends uh, at the church, my fear of Islam, uh, and, and how this was affecting Christian Britain. Um, and I decided, not 100% sure why, but I think maybe curiosity, to go to my local mosque uh, and actually talk to, to, to Muslims and find out if Islam really was this threat to Britain, to the West, you know, if it really was it a terrorist religion now, because 9-11 had happened. And uh, so I was vaguely aware of, of that context. Um, so I, I literally walked in the door of my local mosque, which is Regent's Park Mosque, which is um, one of the big mosques, main mosques in Britain. It's, it's interesting, the, the trustees of that mosque are all the ambassadors from the Muslim nations. So our, actual, our treasurer of that mosque is actually the Saudi ambassador. So. <laughs> I just say that it's not like to go bankrupt the mosque I think anytime soon. Um, no, uh, but seriously, just do all the ambassadors. So it's a very kind of high-profile mosque, a very, uh, it's a very beautiful mosque, and I have some very good friends there now. Uh, even amongst people who run it, they're very, very good people. But um, so I walked through the doors. Walked, I saw a bookshop on the right hand side. Ah, a bookshop! I recognise what that is. So you know, I went to the bookshop, and for some reason I was immediately spotted as 
kind of a neophyte Englishman who, right. you know, it's looking out of place really. And um, you know, the brothers they were very very good. They, they took me in hand. They bought me loads of books, and they were, you know, and that began a dialogue, a conversation, and occasionally an argument um, with them about uh, Islam. And I discovered something I didn't know anything about, which was Islam itself, real Islam, um, not the caricature that. Uh, well, I didn't really know anything about it. Not the, the external fear, the actual reality. So thinking about some of that early encounter with Islamic thought, um, I know that one thinker who you engaged with was uh, the great scholar Guy Eaton, uh, and you read uh, Islam and the Destiny of Man, mm. uh, which you've actually... Funny you should say that. It just so happened. It just so happened by coincidence. Yeah. I have my, uh, <laughs> <laughs> my uh, copy. Um, yes, uh, this is the first book on Islam I ever bought, which uh, it is, yes, it's still got rid of the original. Uh, I bought many copies since Kim gave them away, but this is my original. Um, and um, yeah, I, I read this, I, I got it in um, Waterstones in uh, Piccadilly in London, uh, just looking on the bookshelf, wanted a book on Islam, so this looked uh, promising. Um, and uh, I read that as a Christian, and I remember having, at the end of the reading of it, my heart was Muslim, although my head was still Christian. I was still intellectually uh, committed to Christianity, but there had been a, a deep, profound change within my uh, at a deeper level than my intellectual level. Mm. Um, Could you say a bit about Guy Eaton, uh, who he was? Yeah, I, I once, as an economist scholar, I once spoke to Abdul Hakim Murad about Guy Eaton. Um, after, Tim Winter, of course, needs no introduction here, of all places, because uh, he was at Cambridge University academic. Um, and I called him a scholar, uh, Guy Eaton. He said, a scholar? And I don't think he was a scholar in the, in the sense that we would understand that now, but he, he was an incredible human being. He was a diplomat, he was a writer, he wrote some extraordinary books, he was a full-time um, consultant at Regent's Park Mosque, actually, for some years. Um, and um, what Guy can call the, he called him the, the grandfather of British Islam. I don't know what that means, but it sounds very grand, and I, I don't have a problem with that. Um, but he writes like an angel. I've never come across, well, there are a few other writers I've come across who write so beautifully, um, and I wanted to just read something of him. Um, but I do recommend his work, this is not the only book of his, uh, to anyone who is not a Muslim who wants to know more about Islam, particularly. It's not very PC to say that. If you come from a kind of educated background, uh, then, because his language is quite elevated, um, so, you know, it requires a certain level of tuning into it. Um, but a lot of English or Westerners, uh, Americans and others, have become, encountered Islam and become Muslim through reading this book, actually. Um, so and many Muslims appreciate it as well. Would you do us the honour oh, of... Oh, yes. <laughs> OK, well, the pleasure of reading. Uh, I mean, I just wanted to share with you uh, a passage almost at random, um, just to give you a flavour of his eloquence and, um, and what I found uh, all those years ago so impressive about him. Uh, it taught me, this book showed me, it discla disclosed to me that, I know it sounds very naive now, but that there was another religious tradition that had a profound spiritual dimension to it, that at least equal that of Christianity. Because in Christianity, I knew about St. John of the Cross and the author of the Cloud of Unknowing. I knew about St. Thomas of Kempis. I knew about St. Augustine, his confessions, and so on and so on. These are great spiritual writers. Um, 
But I had no idea that there was another tradition that had at least, I say at least, because there is even more so, I think, in Islam, in terms of great spiritual works. Um, and Gaidman was a beginning into that, a conduit into that reality. Um, and that really was the question that I had in mind, for me, that if God had spoken so clearly and beautifully through Islam, what does that, take, what does that say to me? You know? But anyway, um, uh, there's a chapter here called Truth and Mercy. Um, page 73, um, I'm not even going to introduce it, it's fairly self-evident what he's talking about, I think. Every man and woman is inwardly a city in which there are many factions, one gaining the upper hand today, another tomorrow. The only people in whom this warfare of the factions is appeased are, on the one hand, the saints, those wholly integrated beings who have brought all such contrary forces under the control of the highest principle, and, on the other, those who have surrendered entirely to the most powerful and brutal faction in their makeup, and so enjoy an illusion of peace worse than any warfare. Between these two extremes lies a battlefield. The fact that there are many people who live quiet lives of routine, neither looking to the right nor to the left, nor upwards towards the heavens, nor downwards into the abyss, is misleading. For there are forces lurking within everyone which may remain dormant so long as no great prize is within reach, or so long as no great danger threatens. When a man turns to religion, these forces are awakened, whether for good or ill, and if for ill, may try, may try to seize hold of it and use it for their own purposes. No ego is more inflated than the one which feeds upon religion and justifies its greed and its fury in religious terms. It can even happen that the inhibitions which restrain murderous impulses in those who live only for this world are released when the opportunity arises to murder in the name of God. Those who seek paradise walk a tightrope over hell. The greater the prize, the greater the risk. But light is light. By its very nature, it shows up things we might prefer to keep hidden. It reveals and exposes, as does that judgment to which we must all finally submit. The agnostic has a very curious notion of religion. He is convinced that a man who says, I believe in God, should at once become perfect. If this does not happen, then the believer must be a fraud and a hypocrite. He thinks that adherence to religion is the end of the road, whereas it is, in fact, only the beginning of a very long and sometimes very rough road. He looks for consistency in religious people, however aware he may be of the inconsistencies in himself. The fact that we do expect consistency of others and are astonished by their lack of it is sufficient proof of our awareness that the human personality ought to be unified under one command. Perhaps the most difficult of all the requirements of religion is simplicity. 
for the simple man is all of one piece. He does not leave bits of himself scattered all over the landscape of his life. He is, so to speak, the same all through, whichever way you slice him. And it has been said that only the saint has a right to say, I. The rest of us would do better to confess, my name is Legion. This inward multiplicity, the multiplicity of the factions, is like an echo within the human personality of outward polytheism. On the one hand, many persons within a single envelope of flesh. On the other, many gods in a fragmented universe. Monotheism is not only a theology, it is also a psychology, as is the Shahada, La Halilah Illallah. There you go. That's, I mean, what can I say? It speaks for itself. The book is like that from beginning to end. Um, so, extraordinary man. Deeply powerful words. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you read Islam and the Destiny of Man. Yeah. Uh, you're studying Islam quite a lot, having conversations with Muslims about it. Uh, at what point did you decide to become Muslim and how did that happen? I think, apart from the Quran, the biggest... Uh, extraordinary discovery for me, uh, and it's still something I'm just marveling at, is the life of a human being called Muhammad, upon whom be peace. What an astonishing human being. Uh, I couldn't believe what I was reading. I read this Sira of Martin Lean's, which I think is the most beautiful, one of the most beautiful biographies in the English language, let alone a biography of the Prophet, upon whom be peace. And it's sorely underrated as a biography because of its subject matter, I suspect. But it, it is an absolute classic biography in, in, of English literature. So I read that and just totally amazed uh, at the, on every level. Here was a man who was a, a father, a general, a statesman, a prophet, a spiritual leader, um, and so on and so on. You know, yeah, I've come across great prophets before. I've come across Moses upon whom be peace. I've come across great spiritual teachers like Jesus upon whom be peace. But here was a man who embodied in one person so many of these diverse uh, uh, attributes um, in one man. And I found that astonishing. And without going into obviously into the serial, which is not appropriate now, but th this his life was uh, made a huge impact on me. And I had to ask myself the obvious question. If this man was sent by God, which obviously he was, what does that mean for me? You know, how can I possibly, if I could accept that Moses was a prophet of God and that Jesus was a prophet of God, how, by what right, by what criteria can I possibly doubt that, Mah that Muhammad was a prophet of God? Peace be upon the Lord. So the question, so I, I kind of, it was a no brainer. Yes, he was. But I realized it wasn't an intellectual question. The, the answering yes for me was a profoundly existential question and would have implications through my, throughout my life. And I knew that it, it would involve, in a way, crossing a civilizational divide, an ethnic divide, uh, a cultural divide, for, for moving from a majority to a minority in some ways. Although I've never left, I'm now in both, of course, but you can never quite leave either. Um, and so that actually held me back actually, the, the, the sheer gravity of the existential implications of a decision to say the Shahada. So it took about a year or so of being and ahhing, oh dear, what do I do, you know, uh, and, pray, and praying about it and thinking about it and just kind of just chilling and thinking, considering, you know, 
don't want to make hasty decisions. Um, so yeah, it took a while. And then you finally decided to uh, take the Shahada. Uh, did you do it at the local mosque? Yeah, at Regent's yeah. Park Mosque. Yeah. Yeah. I went through the formality. Yeah. And how did your life uh, change when you became a Muslim? Were there new challenges? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, some of these challenges I don't even remember as challenges, like not drinking alcohol. Uh, I mean, I haven't drunk alcohol for so long now. And I, it's really weird, you know, because we're Muslim. People don't realise, I mean, by people I mean British people in general, <laughs> don't realise you can actually have a really good time with your mates without getting drunk. <laughs> I mean, but this is a complete mystery to most people. They just don't get it. And I get it now because I live this reality all the time, but really people don't, and I didn't. It was like, ah, got to give up wine, oh my God, and, you know, and this is a real sacrifice. You know? <laughs> but this was a long time ago, and I, I, I really can't remember why it was such a fuss. But anyway, so these are the kinds of things that seem like challenges, but actually turn out to be um, blessings, really. Um, I think giving up pork was more difficult, because um, I liked... Um, Bacon butties, whatever it is, you know. Uh, but um, again, one does it because what one one is told to. You know, it's a question of submission, of course, which is what being a Muslim is. One yeah. submits to God. Um, you know, I, I, but I took comfort from the fact that Jesus uh, was a Torah observant Jew, so the evidence tells us. So he would never have touched pork. And he goes without saying that. Uh, the Torah prohibits it and Moses didn't eat it so you know if we're to be good followers of Jesus today we must do what he did and be like Muslims actually and Christians now unfortunately don't follow Jesus anymore they think they do but they don't because if they did they would do as he did and the only people I know who do as he did are Muslims I, I, mean, I mean okay there are one or two Christians who might but like Catholics in general don't, Anglicans in general don't, Methodists in general don't, Orthodox in general don't. Um, so this is the great, irony, the great irony of history that Islam is actually, Muslims are, are the authentic followers of Jesus, not Christians. This is an extraordinary irony of history. There we go. And uh, spiritually, I suppose it came to be as, you know, Gaetan wrote that uh, accepting Islam was just the beginning of the journey. Yes, yeah. yes. Indeed. Oh, absolutely. No, I, I, I mean, I'm not going to do these embarrassing things in public, but I, boy, did I mess up and, um, you know, make mistakes. Um, and, um, but I also learned. Uh, but above all, I've been hugely blessed by Allah, uh, actually, uh, particularly, I mean, the subject tonight is blogging theology, but in whatever success the channel has is, is uh, directly and only attributed to his blessings. I'm very aware that um, of, of the huge grace that he has bestowed on, on the channel and its work, and that it can be taken away as well. It, it is very vulnerable, um, not least because you know who knows what YouTube may do tomorrow. But yeah, so um, and I'm also aware that it's now in my own mind. That might, perhaps we're going to this. My understanding of the channel has changed, evolved. It's more now of, of a service to the Ummah as well. It's not just my hobby horse. As it so, was. so on on that then. <laughs> yeah. Uh, mm. How did blogging theology start? Oh, in a word, COVID. COVID was the, <laughs> the crucible, the horrible crucible of this. As it was, I mean, a lot of people found, I know a lot of people suffered, and I don't want to make light of that, but for a small minority, or not so small, I don't know, we, we, our lives changed during COVID for the better. It was a catalyst for change, strangely, unexpectedly. 
uh, despite all the suffering uh, that many people had. And so I was quite, you know, like all of us were, we were during lockdown, although my particular job meant that I, I was obliged to go out and work. Um, uh, nevertheless, you know, I remember walking down Regent Street in London, it was like an apocalyptic scene from some Hollywood movie, like there was no one there, like on a Saturday afternoon, there were no human beings in central London. And I've actually got footage on my iPhone, it's quite extraordinary. Um, so for me, I, I had a bit of money and I decided to buy you know, the latest MacBook Pro computer, which I didn't need because it has vastly over capacitated you know, for my own modest, very modest needs. But hey, I had the money, so I decided to buy the latest technology from Apple. Um, and um, my way of reaching out to the world during this isolating period was to make a video or two on YouTube. And I did. So who was your first guest? Well, there wasn't a guest for several months. I, right. I just blogged about stuff I found interesting. So I, I blogged about, I don't know, um, the Bible, you know, biblical scholarship or theology or just what, what interested me. Really. At that point, who yeah. do you think your audience were? Oh, I was my audience. So. Right. <laughs> um, there was an audience of one. Um, so it doesn't make much sense, does it really? But anyway, um, but there were a couple of people, I think, who showed a slight interest. Um, and then um, after a couple of months, I, I thought, well, why don't I actually invite a guest on? And I, you know, who can I invite on? I couldn't invite anyone, a big name, because uh, you know, no one had ever heard of the channel. Why would they come on? Anyway, I, I, I selected a, a kind of middle-ranking scholar, as I call it, the extraordinary Englishman with an extraordinary name who lives in the American South called Sir Anthony Buzzard. Yes, you heard me right. Sir Anthony Buzzard, yes, that's his real name. And his father actually was head of naval intelligence during World War II. And I mention that because, you know, Anthony Buzzard is a biblical scholar who lives in Georgia, Atlanta, in the States. And uh, he's a Unitarian Christian. So he's a Christian who does not believe Jesus is God. Um, and uh, so I kind of emailed him. Also. I've seen some of his videos on YouTube. I thought, he's a nice guy. Maybe he'll come on. And, uh, and I, so I emailed him or something. And totally amazing. He said, yes. And I thought, wow, this is awesome. So. Uh, um, he came on, uh, well, he was in Georgia and I was in London, and it was, it was such fun, and he was such a good sport, and um, a good character, and we had a, a great laugh. I don't mean laugh, laugh, but you know, we had a, it was <laughs> talking about the historical Jesus and New Testament texts and whatnot. Um, and that went well, uh, and um, so I put that up, and, um, and then I thought, well, I've got to pass I can invite another scholar, and that's when I really tried my luck, so I invited um, Dominic Crossan, he was a seriously distinguished biblical scholar in the United States, and uh, he said yes. Um, and that was the beginning of what has become more recognisably blogging theology. But these guests were far and few between. Most of the stuff was my own interests, actually, rather than producing guests and content all the time. Right, so that's how blogging theology got going. Yeah. Uh, as they say, the rest is history. Uh, so how do you think your vision for the channel has changed since you started? Yeah, well there wasn't a vision, this yeah. is the thing, there was no vision, um, there was no um, plan at all. Um, with lockdown, new computer, let's do something with it, let's indulge, invite a few guests from the books that I had read, let's do my own stuff, so I produced bits and pieces of videos which seemed to be quite popular, and I noticed after several months, I, I forget, maybe it's only three or four months, something very strange starts to happen and that everything I did went viral. It was like 
what is going on here? And like a lot of people were, were signing up and my stats went through the roof and they just kept on rocketing and rocketing and rocketing and on demand. Um, and I didn't understand why, because I didn't have any plan and I wasn't looking for, I mean, there were no clickbaits. I didn't know the, the, the audio was crap, the visual was crap. It was awful, you know, and there was no logical reason why any of this should have been successful. I didn't know anything about anything. And I remember I had a friend of mine, well, the guy who appeared, he's actually an Egyptian, he'll be watching this, I'm sure, but he, <laughs> he's a, uh, from, it's fine, he doesn't mind, uh, from Alexandria, he's a professor of, uh, at the University of Alexandria in, in, in surgery, of all things. And he, he came alongside me, a very bright guy, and said, Paul, you really need to improve your audio, you really need to improve your video. <laughs> And he gave me all these really technical explanations. I had no idea what he was talking about. And I said, I don't understand what you're talking about. So he went back to baby steps and he helped me just improve, like put up the volume and tone this down and done this. And it really was excruciatingly um, slow progress for someone as ignorant as me. But slowly by slowly, things improved. And, um, and, but there was no vision, there was no plan. I can't stress that enough. But I found that I started to have to think in terms of one because something, a phenomena was emerging which I hadn't expected. So what do I do with this phenomenon? And that was the question. And so that was the challenge, actually. Um, and so t today, um, I've come a long way, uh, alhamdulillah, thanks to the blessings and grace of God. Um, and that's not a pious phrase, I really mean that. It is only because of his... Um, um, <coughs> <laughs> it's quite emotional one. Um, so um, today uh, the channel uh, does, uh, okay, what's the channel today? Today the DNA of the channel, as I understand it, is it's a, a bridge between the ivory tower academia, funny sitting in this institution, and um, what I call every man or every woman, the, the educated lay person, um, of which I see myself as a lay person. So I invite people on who um, I find interesting in the areas of Abrahamic faith, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, and allied subject, be it history or theology or textual studies or evolution or whatever. So it's incredibly broad in its implications. Um, to talk about their expertise and to share their knowledge, to share their expertise, to benefit me, to benefit us all as the audience. Um, so that, that's, but I also, I, I try to produce my own content because that apparently still has some traction as well. Um, but I'm very much aware it's, it's something, it's a service to the Uma now, and it's no longer my plaything. It's no longer my little computer where I do my thing. It's grown out of that, and I've had to re uh, accept that responsibility um, because that is what it is. I just have to be responsible. Um, no. Well, may Allah bless your efforts and uh, accept them from you. Um, before we break for Asr, mm. I'd uh, like to turn to a bit of a more general question. Uh, the state of the Muslim community in the UK, um, as someone who speaks to lots of uh, thinkers on this issue, uh, who's Sort of speaks to lots of Muslims who are thinking about this sort of thing. How, how do you see the state of British Muslims? Uh, well, also, I'm not an, an expert. Um, I, I did actually have one on, uh, uh, Professor Linda Woodhead. She's Professor of 
Sociology of Religion at King's College in London. This was several months ago, and I do recommend you see that video. Uh, she was speaking to the results of the, um, the survey, the census right. results rather, which came out several months ago. And she said something that was very interesting and, uh, and rings true, and I've had corroborated from a number of people I've spoken to. Religion in this country in general is, in the, is on the decline. We're becoming an increasingly secular society. People are not, uh, in general, involved in formal religious adherence. Christianity is in precipitous freefall, it has been, and the trajectory is that it will continue to be so in the future. So Christianity is dying in this country, and I take no joy in that. We need a robust pushback against things. The big exception to all of this bad news, however, and you know, of course, better than I, is Islam and Muslims, and where the story is the complete opposite, according to the statistics. And I've... Um, and I remember I went up to Birmingham a couple of months ago and spoke to Sheikh Azra there to interview him about his marvellous new book on, on atheism, you know, uh, countering atheism, forget the name of it, uh, Islam and Atheism. And I, I remember speaking to some of his um, friends, you know, uh, Muslim youth, actually, who I met. And I said to them, you know, I, I've heard, is it true that, um, you know, Muslim youth are, 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 pra are praying, are committed? believe in the Son of the Prophet, are reading the Quran, he said, yes, that Muslim youth are more prayer, are more committed and more praying than their fathers and mothers, and they are, uh, who are uh, more committed than their parents, the first wave of immigrants to the UK, to England. And I, and I said, is, is this true? In, this is in Birmingham, of course, which probably has, I think, the largest proportional percentage of Muslims in any major Europe, uh, English city, perhaps. Um, he said, yes, it's true across the board. And um, this is remarkable. Um, and I was in Berlin recently, um, and I saw the same thing there during Ramadan. The, ch the mosques there are packed. And they're not just packed with, you know, octogenarians. They're packed with, <laughs> they're packed with young people, um, young men as well. And this is remarkable. Um, I have a friend of mine, Dr. Abdullah Swedi, he's an academic at the University of Medina, and he wrote an article recently about the problems of Muslims in Sweden. The problems there are problems of growth, of finding mosques to pray in. There are so many committed, devout Muslims. And this is an extraordinary piece of good news. I know there's an awful lot of bad news. You all know what the bad news is. But when it comes, if I can be crude and sociological, when it comes to Islam, it's a success story in the West. Now, I know there are a lot of problems, and everyone's going to say, ah, oh, but what about all this? Yes, 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 I know all that. But in terms of the committed, you know, I find it very, I mean, there are apparently secularized liberal Muslims around, and I do believe they exist, but I don't know many of them. The average Muslims I encounter believe they believe in the Quran and the Sunnah. You know, they, they know how to navigate the pressures they get from certain ideologies, which perhaps I won't mention to get you into trouble, but um, you know they know they know how to resist them. They 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 say no. We will follow God. We will submit to God, not to the latest pressure groups. Um, this is remarkable, and um, I feel very very heartened by it. And um, and on another note about whether or not Muslims belong in Britain at all. This is a, a good question that's asked, and I get I get this on Twitter directed at me. So why don't you go to live in Saudi Arabia then? All this rubbish. 
I, I want to quote a much shorter passage of yours here from this book by uh, Abdul Hakim Murad, again, Tim Winter, of course, of this university, Travelling Home, Essays on Islam in Europe. And he addresses this very question about um, whether or not Muslims belong in England. And of course, you can guess he might say yes, but the reasons he give, he gives, I think, are profound. And he has a nice dig at certain other people as well. So if I may, I'll just um, read this. So he starts off by talking about, this is the introduction to his book, Travelling Home, which I do recommend, by the way, if you want to explore this whole question about the, the place and role of Muslims in Europe. In the introduction, he, he's talking about the, uh, the universalism of Islam. It belongs everywhere. And he says, Muslims find themselves at home everywhere. For this same universalism of Islam enables a local rooting which recognizes that, quote, wheresoever you may turn, there is God's face. It's a quote from the Chronicles 315. Then he goes on. Such is this Muslim sense of belonging that Muslim believers feel more at home in a place than any atheist could, since to lose contact with God is immediately to forfeit one's sense of connection to a place of his making. It is to feel one's roots and identity shrivel. There can be no truly English, German or Russian atheist. Incredible statement. From this kind of Muslim perspective, Lenin was not Russian, Douglas Murray is not British, and Sam Harris is not American. They seem to wait in a forlorn foreign encampment, even when officially at home. By contrast, to become Muslim, or to arrive from an Islamically Abrahamic place, and to maintain that traditional sensibility which perceives God's signs superabundantly everywhere, is immediately to see the land with understanding, and hence to begin to grow roots and to adorn and engage the earth. Such, very roughly, is the Islamic theory of Abrahamic mobility. Unlike Israel's wanderings in exile, which await the Messianic intervention, which will take the people to a home greater than all homes, Muslims travel from one home to an equal other, and do not cherish a return to the mother of cities, except as visitors. They migrate Abrahamically, but every country for them is a promised land. So we belong because this is God's country and we are God's people. Atheists cut that root. They, are, they have lost connection with that fundamental reality of what it is to live in God's world. And there's a nice dig at Douglas Murray there, which if you know anything, I'm not going to go into it, if you know anything about the backstory of this, you'll know why perhaps he was mentioned by name. I'm not going to say why, because that's the story best told on another occasion. But, I mean, that's just brilliant. And it really gives, it's not a political justification, it's not a cultural, it is a deeply theological and anthropological understanding of why Muslims, as, a, as Abrahamic people, belong here. But they belong everywhere, actually. In France, dare I say it, 
and that is a daring thing to say, apparently. <laughs> in Germany, dare I say it, which is certainly daring there too, apparently, um, let alone, obviously, in the, uh, the obviously Muslim-majority countries in, in the world. So I, I think that kind of insight is absolutely invaluable in pushing back against that kind of, frankly, Islamophobic uh, and atheist polemic. Why are we here? Well, we're here because we belong, and this is God's land, and we are his guests, and we are his people. We are the people of Abraham, and that's it. And if the atheists rail against that, well, sorry, but you've lost that connection. And indeed, Britain, historically, was a profoundly a, a country of faith, but it's no longer, unfortunately. And it's the Muslims that hold the banner of Tawheed, of, of Abrahamic monotheism, and that we can remind, uh, if we have to, if that is our destiny, to remind and reintroduce the faith of Abraham, which is what the Quran calls it, of course. It's not a new faith. It's the old, old faith of Abraham, to remind the peoples of these lands what they have lost, what they have lost connection with, and thus to bring them home to the, the real home that they have lost, that Muslims can remind them of. So maybe we're, we're here to bring healing rather than chastisement, actually. And I know Tim Winton, his book, emphasizes that a lot, that we, that we can bring news of this redemption, this healing, rather than kind of denouncing people uh, and cutting them away, but bringing them back, back home. So, interesting the title of the book, Travelling Home, Essays on Islam and Europe. And so I do recommend that. Yes, may, may Allah preserve our Sheikh Abdullah Kimarad. One final question from me. Uh, this is a very important week for Britain as the coronation of uh, our King Charles III. Um, what are your thoughts on His Majesty's uh, relationship with Islam? That's, a, that's an interesting question, a controversial one. I, I mean, my, my most popular video was about King Charles III, as you might know. Um, and I just made that impromptuly uh, after the death of his, his mother. And. Um, um, I was able to discover quite easily some extraordinary speeches that he had made over the years uh, at another university, uh, Oxford, um, where um, he, he had spoken. I don't know if he actually wrote the speech, but it doesn't really matter. He, he uh, owned it. It was his speech uh, in the most eloquent and, and insightful ways about the place of Islam in Europe historically. This is more facet of this. Uh, he referenced Islamic Spain, of course, and the extraordinary pre-Renaissance -re, pre contributions that. Muslims have made in a whole range of subjects from you know astronomy and mathematics and geology and medicine and and so on and so on and and, and the, the, these discoveries as well as preserving the the legacy of the Greek the Greeks and the Romans uh, this was transmitted and passed on to the rest of Europe a uh, Christian Europe uh, which gave birth to the Europe the, the Renaissance uh, and then ultimately to the Enlightenment and the and the scientific discoveries uh, were passed on, and in medicine I mentioned that, mathematics and so on. And he, 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 he mentioned all of this. So he is a friendly face. He's a, a king who, uh, inshallah, would be a friend to Muslims. However, some may say, this is the journalist way of putting it, some may say that, you know, since he's becoming king, you know, he's not perhaps been as, um, uh, vocal, explicit, uh, as, as what some people wanted him to be. Uh, and um, I noticed in the press a day or two ago there was a call that the British people, including Muslims presumably, should 
make a pledge of allegiance to the king. And this is, this is controversial and complicated um, because this is a, the coronation is an explicitly Christian ceremony, I understand, and um, you know, he is the head of the church, and is it appropriate that Muslims should, you know, there was one tweet uh, that someone sent me, you know, the, 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 only, the only king that I have is Allah, you know, Allah is our king. And this is true. <laughs> um, so should Muslims be giving their allegiance to a Christian king in a Christian ceremony? I have my view. I'm not, you know, it's not my, you know, I'm not a scholar, you can have your view. Um, but it's voluntary, we don't have to do it. Um, but I, I would hope that he will be more proactive and more explicitly a friend of Muslims. He, he knows, he has an inner knowledge of it. I mean, he, he knew Martin Lings, apparently, the great Bible for the Prophet, um, and other people uh, one could mention. So he has personal acquaintance with uh, Muslim scholars. But how much of that he can continue to pursue and publicly manifest in his role as monarch, I don't know. I'm pessimistic, actually. One would assume that he, he has to be uh, very careful yeah. and he has to bear in mind the lesson of his, uh, his yeah. late mother, the Queen, and how she sort of avoided controversy. Yes. Uh, it seems behind the scenes, um, King Charles has been in a bit of a conflict with um, the Church of England. Uh, over what he wanted for the ceremony yeah. and the fact that he wanted uh, non-Christian faith leaders to sort of take part in it and that violates canon law of the Church of England uh, but he has introduced uh, an element of the coronation where he wants um, peers of all faiths not just Christians to sort of be very prominent in it and the media, much of the media is reporting this as some sort of, uh, you know, tokenistic diversity and it's, it's because of political correctness. But of course, what most of the journalists don't understand is that uh, King Charles actually has a very deep interest in, yes. you know, in traditionalism, in yes. uh, René yes. Guénon in particular, yes. Yes. the uh, French traditionalist and convert to Islam. And so uh, there is all that behind the scenes that yes. many people in the country yes aren't aware of. Yeah, I was impressed that Prince Charles knew about no, Rene, Rene Gaynor at all. I mean, you know, he's, he's a pretty obscure figure unless you're interested in that kind of thing. And he's a brilliant writer and I certainly recommend him. That. But um, the fact that he knew about him and, and clearly supports his traditionalism, he publicly said so, um, assuming this is actually the Charles speaking, and I think it is, means, wow, you know, we've got a very much a friend on the throne. But, as you say, the, con the constitutional constraints, I suspect, will mute him. That's probably well, thank you very much. Uh, we'll pause there uh, and pray, Asr, and uh, inshallah, we'll see you all after the break. Thank you. Thank you. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamu alaikum, everyone, again. Uh, welcome to part two, inshallah. We now have a half an hour uh, audience Q&A uh, completely open, really excited to hear your questions and I'm very uh, optimistic that they're going to be uh, good, good questions as well. Um, those of you who are ISOC members, you will have in the group chat, they have been sent a form. Uh, with that form you can submit uh, questions anonymously if you like. Uh, we will be prioritising in-person questions though, so if you raise your hand um, and I'll select you and then please do try and uh, project your voice because we have a lack of uh, microphones apart from these two. Uh, but So without further ado, do we have our first question from the floor? 
Yes, brother over there. You mentioned earlier there were a few things in the Bible which kind of raised mm. out some questions. I know you mentioned the divinity of Jesus, but what were some of the other ones? Yeah, that's uh, a good question. Um, I mean, to give you a very honest answer, it was a passage in the Gospel of Mark, the earliest Gospel to be written, uh, chapter 13. Um, without going into all the issues, um, it appeared to me in reading that chapter, that very, very simplistically, extremely briefly, uh, the disciples of Jesus are standing in front of the Jewish temple, which stood at that time in AD 30, shall we say, remarking on this incredible building built by Herod. It was an amazing building, apparently. And Jesus makes a prediction that um, the temple will be destroyed and not one stone will be left standing on another stone. And then Jesus goes into the extraordinary kind of eschatological apocalyptic discourse called the Olivet Discourse by some scholars where he speaks of the destruction of the temple and then immediately following destruction of the temple, the word immediately is the usual word in English we find in translations, we have what is conventionally called the second coming of Jesus. So the return of the Son of Man on the clouds of heaven, gathering the elect from the four corners of the earth, because the earth had four corners. Um, the point being that the end, the, the eschatological event, would seem to be predicted to happen within the generation of people then living. And in verse 30 it actually says, all these things, I'm giving the usual translation in Greek, all these things will take place within this generation. All these things refers to the preceding events in the chapter, Mark 13, including the second coming. <laughs> now, we live 2,000 years later. It doesn't take a genius to work out that it didn't happen. Now, this was a prime Ephesi reading that I had of that passage, so I read off to the scholars, and I can't tell you how many commentaries that I have read on this chapter. It must be 30 to 40 volumes of different academic... I mean, I went, whenever I a book show, I just grab a commentary on Mark 13 and just read what scholars are saying. And you know, so some of them uh, translate the words genera in Greek uh, as genera, as, uh, as race. You know, this race will not pass away to always. But that's not accurate in the Greek. And I, I know a little bit of Greek, and I, I'm, you know, consult the experts. The word in Greek means generation. In other words, it's as bad as it sounds, the passage. So what, why is this a problem? Well, I believed Jesus was God. And um, Jesus made a, a prediction that was false by any obvious account, because yes, the destruction of the temple did happen in AD 70. The Romans went in, they decimated it. You can read about it in Josephus's work. Uh, he actually participated in it, the great Roman, uh, great Roman, yeah, Jewish historian. Uh, but the end didn't happen, uh, and you know, history continued year after year after year, and for 2,000 years we've still been sitting here. So how how does one understand this? And you know, the, the, I think it's fair to say the consensus of critical scholars, I'm not talking about fundamentalist Christians and American Bible seminaries, I'm talking about critical scholars, the kind of people who would teach you at Cambridge or Oxford or Harvard or Yale, the kind of people that I even interview and I've spoken to about this, the consensus is, it does say that. It's a problem. And this is an issue that has dominated New Testament studies, it's called eschatology, for you know, 150 years, the works of Albert Schweitzer, and I mean, without going to the list of luminaries, this is a big subject in New Testament. If you study that, you'll know, you'll know this. 
you know, how do we deal with this problem? The imminent expectation of the end that didn't happen. And it's not just in Mark 13, it's in Paul's writings, Paul's authentic writings, I mean, not the, not the forgeries. Um, you know, we see it in one of the Thessalonians. And so um, how do we deal with this? Now, you know, I, I, as a Muslim, of course, I believe that Jesus didn't make this. I mean, the whole issue of the relationship between the Quran and the Bible and, you know, the Injil, what is the Injil, what are the Gospels? This is a whole different subject. Fascinating. and It's preoccupied me for a long time. And we're not going to go there because it's unless you want me to. But, um, but you know, I, I, I don't see the four canonical Christian Gospels as the Injil given to Jesus because they were by Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Well, actually, they weren't by them. They were anonymous, but that's another subject. Um, so there isn't really, a, you know, the, the fact that the, the Christian Gospels may say something that was incorrect or attribute to Jesus' sayings that were false, like in the fourth Gospel, John, is it, it, not, not news to a Muslim. You know, we, we, you know the, the, the Quran alludes to problems with the Christian Bible anyway. Um, but as a Christian, it was a massive problem. And it rocked my faith, because how can God make a mistake? Um, and it was always, you know, there, there have been some quite elaborate attempts, like Tom Wright, N.T. Wright, the former Bishop of Durham, who's, um, I forget where he's now, I think he's at Oxford, actually. Um, he goes around, he was up in St. Andrews and so on. Now, he's a brilliant New Testament scholar, he's very conservative, and he comes out with a theory, which I won't go into, in his work. And really, when I read his work, I wanted to believe him. I really wanted Tom Wright to give me a compelling argument but I just didn't find it compelling. And uh, my sense is, looking at the critical reviews of his work by other scholars, like Jimmy Dunn from Durham University, for example, that he's not, been, he's not won over the academic community because he basically absolves Jesus of any issue. There's no, it wasn't a mistake. There's been a misunderstanding about eschatology. We've got it, we've got it wrong. Okay, uh, I just didn't find it persuasive. So um, uh, I think the New Testament does contain some whopping mistakes, uh, false prophecies that never happened. It also contains statements that Jesus denies he is God, which are likely to be historical for a different bunch of reasons. And all these issues are kind of ricocheting around my head. I mean, as a, as a new Christian, this is a heavy burden. And I am free, I'm very happy now to be free of that. I can't tell you how happy I am not to be in that world anymore. There are different, Muslims have problems. There are big problems but they're to do with politics, they're to do with the state of the Ummah globally, they're to do with neo-colonialism, they're to do with, you know, all that stuff. But it's not to do with the Aqidah, it's not to do with who Muhammad was upon whom be peace. It's not to do, I think, with the integrity of the Quran. That's, I think, established even in the West now, uh, 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 beyond a serious dispute, I think. There was a revisionist phase in the 80s and 90s, but not anymore. Um, so yes, yeah, so there are problems if you're Christians or Muslim, yeah, but the, the Muslim set of issues that I, we encounter are quite different, and they usually revolve around the, the political problems that we face, rather than right in the heartlands of our texts themselves, you know. I, I don't see that as being a problem now. I don't know if that helps. Could I just ask please, a Please, please, please. So what about that made you doubt the divinity of Christ as opposed to just the inerrancy of scripture or of Christian scripture? What made me doubt the inerrancy of Christ? Well, what made, what about those kind of doubts that you had over the kind of, or the authenticity of what had been in the texts made you doubt the divinity of Christ? Um, as opposed to just the inerrancy of scripture. Yes, because the inerrancy of scripture was a consequence of the error found in Mark 13. So, you know, inerrancy of a threat. Inerrancy obviously means 
that something is without error, something is infallible. Um, so scripture does contain an error, and a big one. Uh, th you know, this is another text in Mark, in Mark uh, chapter 10, verse 17. A man comes to Jesus and says, good teacher, according to Mark, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, why do you call me good? There is no one good but God alone. Um, so there's an apparent denial, obviously, of Jesus' divinity there. But what's worse, and I, I spoke to uh, Professor John Barton, who's an Anglican priest and professor of Holy Scripture at Oxford University, I'm allowed to mention that place. Um, Outrageous. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, as I should mention, should I say the other place? It's like, you know, yeah. it's like in the House of Commons, you don't mention the House of Lords, you talk about the other place. You know? <laughs> That's how I should say that. Um, because uh, I spoke to him about this, and he's written about this in, in his work. But um, so in Mark 10, uh, Jesus apparently denies he is good or denies he is divine. What's interesting is the later Gospels, who, and this is the standard understanding amongst academics today, um, the later Gospel writers, Mark, uh, sorry, Matthew and Luke, use Mark. Literally, they, they copy Mark, and they sometimes make alterations, sometimes they delete stuff, sometimes they just leave it as it is. Um, but Matthew, when he copies Mark, Matthew wrote later, obviously, the Mark, changes the words of Jesus. And again, this is not my insight, something I discovered. It's called redaction criticism. It changes the words of Jesus to remove the embarrassment. And Jesus says something different. Now, in Matthew's version, a man comes to Jesus and said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, Matthew said, why do you call me good? There's no one good but God alone. So why does Matthew change Jesus' words in Mark? Because, according to Jimmy Dunn, for example, in his book, Making Christology, Matthew, who is writing towards the end of the first century, this is not the Apostle Matthew. None of the Gospels are written by eyewitnesses, by the way. Again, this is the standard view now of historians. Matthew is writing towards the end of the first century. In his community, they believe Jesus is divine, in some sense. So... They change correct Mark's words to reflect that belief. So the denial of Jesus' divinity in Mark is removed and Jesus' words changed. And when I spoke to Professor John Barton from another place uh, on my channel about this, and you can watch it on Blogging Theology, he said this was dishonest of Matthew. Now, this is an Anglican priest saying that Matthew was dishonest to change Jesus's words found in Mark. And that's, I've never come across a scholar publicly saying that before, actually. They'll say, they'll, they'll euphemize it, they'll find language to cover this, but you can see what they mean. But here we had John Barton saying he was being that Matthew was being dishonest. So here we, and this is not the only example, there are many other examples, which I won't go into, where the later gospel writers elevate Jesus' status. They enhance his Christology. They amplify his, who he is in the eyes of the reader from a lower Christology, as it's called, to a higher Christology. And we reach the apotheosis of Christology in the Gospel of John, the last one to be written. And there, uniquely, Jesus walks around saying things like, I am the light of the world. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the resurrection and the light, etc., etc." These I am statements, which are, in some sense, a claim to divinity, are only found in the last gospel written. They're not found in Matthew, they're not found in Mark, they're not found in Luke. 
They're not found in Q, which is a source used by Matthew and Luke in common with Mark. And they are 90, uh, 99, I remember reading this, it's a cliche now, but 99% of scholars have in the last 150 years concluded that the historical Jesus is to be found in the earlier Gospels and that John represents a, a, a highly developed interpretive tradition where beliefs about Jesus have been put on the lips of Jesus as if Jesus said them. So the author of John believed that Jesus was the light of the world. So he has Jesus say these things. Um, now that's very standard in scholarship. That's not kind of a marginal view. But you see what, what, what we're getting here with a Jesus who has been manufactured and has been created from faith, but not from history. And this is another, uh, discovering this as a Christian was really very challenging. And still is. If you're, if you're a, a Christian studying this at Oxford or Cambridge now, or any university, you will encounter this stuff. This is absolutely mainstream stuff. And you have to deal with it. I was a student at university studying this, and I had to deal with it. And it scared me. Because how do you process this? Well, that's a different subject. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so before I choose the next question, I'll just say, uh, even if I know your name, I won't say your name but uh, you can introduce yourself and maybe say what you're studying, that might be nice, but you don't have to, because uh, this is being recorded, just so you know. So, uh, next question. Uh, yes, sister at the front. Assalamu alaikum. What is my for being here. Um, forgive me, that's not a particularly intellectual question. Um, forgive me, no, that's a relief. Um, <laughs> uh, you mentioned that you came from like kind of a predominantly Christian kind of community. Not uh, really, yeah. Or, or like, not very kind of well versed in kind of Islam, yeah, for example. Yeah. Um, I was wondering when you um, reverted to Islam, what was mm. that process like with your community or, or with your family or friends um, in making that transition? Because I, I can imagine it, it may have been um, quite a big kind of change. Yes, um, I have two examples. Uh, my very, very close Christian friend, as a Christian, um, he, he was a, a head of department in the RE in the London School. Uh, a very committed Christian, as I was, and um, the moment I told him. Uh, I become a Muslim. He, he has never spoken to me since. He, he disowned me instantly, without any mercy. He, he just wouldn't talk. I mean, it was like, Pum! that was it. And this is a guy who I was quite close to. We shared a, a similar uh, concerns, interests. We're both passionate Christians. Um, I wasn't going to say this, but I, I don't see why I shouldn't say this. It's no big deal. Um, I, I'm adopted, and um, uh, and uh, by my parents in, in South End, and. Um, I managed to track down my biological mother, when I've not made this public before, but um, it, um, about 10, 15 years ago. I never met her, I knew, uh, and I didn't know where she was or who she was or even why I was adopted, because I knew she obviously had me and, and she was married. And I thought, well, why was I given up as a baby? I thought maybe I was a particularly ugly baby. And I couldn't I couldn't think why, why would a married couple give up a child for adoption? I now know the reason. And I don't really want to go into that reason because that's not the point of the story. The point is, I couldn't find it, so I actually, you can do this, you can employ a kind of a detective agency basically and they track down relatives, you can't find yourself. So they found her, and this is a funny thing, that she, um, she was a missionary in Africa and she was in Zambia, of all places, as a Christian missionary. And I thought, and you know, I've become a Muslim at this point. <laughs> so not only are the prospect of 
saying hi mum for the first time, but also telling my missionary mother that I was a Muslim. I thought, oh grief, you know, this is, this is so much incredible. So uh, I did literally call her, I was at work, and I, I was in the details, but I literally called her. I mean, what do you say to a woman you've never spoken to or met in your life? Hi, you're my mother, you know, what do you say? So I literally said that, I said, hello. I, I understand you're my mother. She said, oh yeah, I was expecting you to call me. And I'm thinking, <laughs> what do you mean? I, was, I didn't say what. I just I was really cool, you know. Maybe she's mad or something. But no, she, she's not. She wasn't. Well, she's now passed away. Bless her. She had a new lot. Anyway, um, but she said she, you know, she wasn't surprised at all that she was expecting me. I thought, weird, but anyway, she did. Um, but the reason that whole story is, you know, okay, my mother was a Christian missionary. <laughs> so how did she take it? And um, it, it turned out, actually, she was a teacher uh, who lived in, in, in Somerset. And um, she was teaching the Alpha course to a bunch of, um, a group of um, Christian adults who had HIV and AIDS who were actually basically quarantined in Zambia in a, in a, in a compound by the authorities. At that time, that's how they reacted. And so she was there kind of sharing the Alpha course was like a Christian evangelist course. Um, so anyway, I, I so not only did I introduce myself to her as her son, um, I didn't say I was a Muslim at first, but I did. Uh, and very surprisingly, because she was an evangelical missionary, by definition, because she was a missionary on teaching the Alpha course, it's evangelical. Um, she, um, she accepted it. And I, I don't know, maybe deep down she wasn't happy, but she she never bashed an eyelid. She was affirming and carried on being a mother for the brief time I had her uh, before she passed away. Um, so I'm trying to say that was a positive experience, despite every possible reason for it not to be positive. It was, alhamdulillah. So, um, yeah. yeah. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, question from the brother over there. Um, sorry, my name's Farhan. Um, um, so um, the question, this question is kind of like a bit probing, but it's more to like understand sort of the Christian mindset when it comes to like Muslim Christian polemics. But um, you said that during the during like like a year you were like umming and ahhing. Um, I was wondering, was the when you first learned about Islam, was the divinity of well, I guess lack of divinity uh, of Isa Islam and. Uh, uh, yeah, it was was his like lack of divinity and his status uh, like a push or a pull during yeah, that year, and uh, like kind of tied with that. Was there some sort of like emotional sort of? Because I know in Christianity it's not just the factual statement that Jesus is God. It's more like you build you build up like a personal relationship with like I guess the conception yeah. of Jesus that you have in your head. So like, was there some sort of like loss that you experienced when you became Muslim? Like you kind of lost. I, I don't remember actually. I, I think the, what I discovered in Islam was a, an estimation or a, a status given to Jesus which was precisely correct. So the Jews have historically rejected Jesus, obviously. Uh, not the first, Christ, first Christians were Jews, but I mean, in the last 2,000 years, they rejected him. They don't accept him as the Messiah. Christians have worshipped him as God. <laughs> But Muslims get him just right. So yes, he was human. Yes, he was the Messiah. Yes, he was a prophet. Yes, he was born of the Virgin Mary. But he was, wasn't God. And so that, that, that I saw their convergence, a very happy convergence between what historians were saying. So a, a common question might be in, in his, for historians, did Jesus himself think he was God? 
So it doesn't matter what we believe. Did he think he was God in some sense, or divine in some sense? And, you know, the view is no, basically, he didn't. There's no evidence. The only evidence is that he didn't. He was, a, he was a tall observant Jew. You don't think that people are gods. You know, Yahweh is God. He's the creator of the universe. He doesn't, it's not a guy. Um, you know, God is not a man. Um, so Islam, had, the Quran had the, exactly the correct uh, estimation. Um, so the Christians had gone to excess and Jews had, by deficiency, not understood who he was. So that was quite a comforting, it would enable me just to, if you sense, accept the historical realities of who he was, but still look to him as someone who was sent by God, who had something to teach me, um, who was a great example, a great prophet. So I could still honor him. He was still within my universe of spiritual realities, but uh, proportionately and correctly understood, thanks to Islam. And I found that corroborated, as I say, by, by historical research. So all in all, it was quite a happy outcome. But in terms of my personal loss of a relationship, I don't actually remember, it's a long time ago now, but, um, but I still had a relationship with God, but it just wasn't focused on. It's confusing, if you're a Christian, who do you, who do you pray to? Do you pray to the Father, or maybe to the Jesus, or maybe you pray to the Holy Spirit, or maybe you pray to Mary, because one of the most frequently performed prayers in the world by Christians is the Hail Mary which is directly addressed to Mary. Hail Mary means Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. So there's four possibilities, at least. It's a bit confusing after a while, but Islam, of course, takes, there are no intermediaries at all. You go directly to, to God. Um, and that's actually a belief I discovered that Jesus also shared when he reaffirmed the Shema in Acts in uh, Mark chapter 12, which is the, which we find in Surah 112. You know, that God is one. And we pray to him directly, and that's what Jesus taught. Great, thank you. Uh, <clears throat> next question. Yes, Sister Elfram. Um, Asalaamu Alaikum. Um, I'm Anna. First of all, I just want to say thank you so much for today's talk. I really enjoyed listening to you. Um, and I guess my question is a bit of a personal one, but earlier uh, you mentioned um, that when you were sort of learning more about Islam, you engaged in some discourses with, you know, other Muslims. Um, and that just got me wondering if you maybe had some trouble accepting some of the teachings of Islam, maybe, and if you could perhaps tell us about Yeah, that. Oh, I did. Uh, and inevitably, I think, as a, as a secular Western person, one inevitably has certain beliefs that one is socialised into. Um, I mean, without going, some of them are very controversial without going into them. Um, uh, for example, the Hudud punishments. Um, you know, what are we to do with them? Uh, now, 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 what we do with them? I, I mean, uh, it, but I, I didn't understand really the understanding of that that's the issue within the the complex complexity of the Sharia, um, and having had now having a correct understanding of that without going into it because it's a huge subject, you know, it's not really an issue for me anymore. But but initially it was, you know, how how can you advocate the death penalty for X or Y? You know, well, it's not quite the whole story, and I'm sure you you know what the story is. So that was a learning curve. Um, um, so there were issues, uh, I guess, like that, which I just had to go through the, the pain of hearing about and then learning. To, to, one of the big challenges I had was who are the reliable people I can turn to? I don't mean so much my friends, but in terms of scholars, who's going to teach me normative Islam rather than some marginal sectarian interpretation which I shouldn't get misled by. No, you, to, to, who, who are the good guys? 
I, you know, I, I now know, I think, uh, who they are. Um, and some of them teach at this university, um, mentioning no names, hint, hint. Um, and that's a relief because I, I can now listen to people who are experts. And so I just don't now sit here and have problems. I, I can turn to them and on WhatsApp or whatever and say, what is, what is this about? How, how, how do we understand this? Um, but, you know, but my experience of particularly Muslim youth, as I mentioned earlier, is incredibly encouraging. You know, people are holding on to the deen, even when it's a red hot coal, and there's a hadith that speaks directly to this. We're in that now, the, the, the coal is burning, and we're told to hold on to that, this, um, because it's the truth, and it's pleasing to God, and inshallah, all will be well. So it's tough. Well, that's me cancelled now. <laughs> um, so uh, we have my channel cancelled as well. <laughs> <clears throat> well, no, knowing some of the content on your channel, I think it, it won't be this video to do. Thanks. We've got time, uh, so I'm, I'm quite sorry that uh, we didn't have more time for the Q&A. We have a question uh, from a brother at the back in the maroon. Yep. Oh, salam. Alaikum salam. I can see you. My name's Imad, and I'm doing a PhD in theology. Oh. Can you talk Lucky man. Uh, my <laughs> question uh, is a lot of your videos look at questions around politics Islam and politics like uh, Imam Tom mm. extensive three or four part series on the impossible state or I don't know how to pronounce his name Andrew Chowdhury Andrew Chowdhury we were talking about that earlier on with someone else, which is why I misspoke there, but yeah. Uh, over me, yeah, I know he is, yeah. So my question is, uh, having spoken to many different uh, academics on your uh, blog or blog, right now, uh, not right now, since perhaps colonial times, Muslims have no consensus with regards to questions of politics, how Muslims should govern themselves or relate to politics. And there are new and emerging thoughts which I find on your blog really interesting. Uh, I just wanted your thoughts on that and if you saw any future directions on questions around politics. And perhaps a related question, tenuously, is I see on your uh, blog in theology really positive interactions with Christian theologians and scholars. So what your thoughts were on the future of Muslim and Christian relationships, the opportunities there, and perhaps the limits as well. So two questions there. So if, if I just uh, restate those questions oh, um, yes, in case the camera didn't get them. <clears throat> um, so the first question was on politics. Uh, you've had a lot of speakers on your channel discussing new and emerging approaches uh, <clears throat> to Muslim politics. Yeah. Uh, what are your thoughts on those? Um, answer the first one first. Second is engagement with Christian. And I've got one minute to do that. Okay. Yes. Um, now, I'm very envious, uh, brother, you're doing a PhD in theology, um, but apart from my envy. Um, yeah, um, Wal Halak uh, is a professor at Columbia University um, who's written The Impossible State, a book that I've discussed with this extraordinary, brilliant young uh, scholar, uh, Imam Tom, is his name, uh, known from um, New York. Uh, do follow him, watch him on his channel, Imam Tom. Um, American guy. Um, 
while Halak's actually a Palestinian Christian, believe it or not, <laughs> he's not even a Muslim, but he is listed amongst one of the top 500 Muslim uh, personalities <laughs> in the world, and he's not even a Muslim, can you believe it? Sort of honorary Muslim, I suppose. Um, I, I, I actually got a quote by him, this is slightly off tangent, but I, I love this quote, and I do recycle it whenever I get the opportunity, so I'm going to inflict it on you, um, from Professor Wala Halak. Letters written about secularism. Okay, he, he's written a lot about secularism. What is it? And, and should we... Well, he wrote, he wrote the following, and I think it's so good. Let us remember what secularism is, says Professor Wala Halak, the Christian. <laughs> secularism is not just segregating religious life into the private sphere. It is rather the determination of the state of what religion is and is not, where and how it can be exercised. In terms of political theology, secularism is the murder of God by the state. The state can delimit, limit, qualify, um, can limit, exclude, or curtail any religious practice and thus has the power to determine the quality and quantity of the religious sphere, sphere as it sees fit. Um, he's very good in dissecting the dynamics of secularism and what, the, the realities of secularism rather than the, the way it presents itself and justifies itself. For example, in France, laicite, it has a certain rationale Oh, it's just you know fair play for, but the reality is different. Uh, and while Halleck um, demythologizes the liberal discourse on secularism powerfully, which is why I like him a lot. Um, Islam, as you know, is a deen. I mean, the word religion is not a good translation of that. Um, what does it mean? I don't know of an appropriate word to translate this Arabic word deen. But whatever it means, it does include politics. So it's not like a privatized Protestant faith where we just pray to Jesus in our private, you know. It, it is life itself, everything, including religion, including the state uh, and um, politics. Um, one of the controversies, and feel free to shoot me down on this, and it's just my opinion, I'm not a scholar, I'm just a layman with a YouTube channel, so feel free to ignore me. But what I think I've discovered, as a, a, a fairly ignorant layman, is that the normative Sunni tradition, the normative Sunni position is that Muslims should have a single ruler, an imam, um, call him an imam, call him a caliph, call him what you want, doesn't really matter, he comes by lots of names, but we should be united behind a, a caliph, an imam, a ruler. And uh, obviously he should rule by Islam that we should not be cut up into a, a, a large, vast number of statelets or nation-states, that we should be unified as an ummah. That's my understanding of what normative Islam says by everyone, <laughs> be it Al-Ghazali, be it Ibn Taymiyyah, you name it, they all seem to, even the Shias, everyone says it, I think anyone doesn't say it. Um, and we're not there. We are in a world where we are disunited and split up into nation states, and we, you know, the, you know better than I what's really going on. So, in terms of politics, and again, I'm very happy to be corrected by people of knowledge, which many of you, I'm sure, are. That is my understanding of where ideally we should be moving towards a unified Muslim world where people's rights are respected, which is pluralist, where Christians have their rights, where Jews have their rights, and others have their rights. But we have uh, a, a ruler who 
will be a shield against the egregious attacks on us, whether it be from certain lobbies I mentioned five minutes ago, or other other forces that seek to secularize or destroy Islam, which are very powerfully operating, obviously, in the world today. So the good news, from, as far as I understand it, as an ignorant layman, is that there are hadith that speak powerfully to this, that one day, God willing, he will, it will come about again. God will give us um, an Islamic world again, where we will not be divided and vulnerable to attack cultural, political, even military attack from powers that seek to invade our countries all the time. Um, that He will give this to us, uh, and inshallah it will happen soon. Whether or not I'll live to see it, I don't know. It doesn't really to do with me really but you know I'd love to I'd love to see it but so it's only a very political I was asked a political question and that so Umatics uh, Overmere yes so Overmere is a very interesting chat I had breakfast with him a couple of weeks ago actually when he was visiting Cambridge yeah in London he visited uh, we, we met um, this Umatics um, is, is, is this concept really exciting I do really encourage people to look at this um, very kind of uh, refined uh, and creative intellectual movement that is beginning to come about discussing politics in Islam uh, in terms of rulership, uh, uh, not in a fanatical sense, not in an extremist sense, but in a very respectable, considered, nuanced way, just trying to grapple with these issues about the Ummah and the rulership of the Ummah. And I really commend what he is doing. Um, he's an outstanding scholar, and he's bringing on board lots of other scholars with him in this project to talk about discourse, political discourse, and Islam. And it's sorely needed, and um, I'm very happy to that he's doing this, uh, and inshallah he'll be successful. Well, I, I think we better leave it there. Yeah. Uh, before we all get reported to prevent. Exactly. Uh, no, I, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> this, uh, the Q&A could have gone on all night, really, I think. Uh, Paul, uh, really have to thank you uh, for coming oh, today. It's you. an absolute, absolute honour. Um, the honour was all mine. I'm sure I, I, saw, I can tell from everyone's faces that everyone's really loved it. Uh, so let's all uh, give Paul a massive uh, round <laughs> I should say we're very grateful to Newnham College for allowing this event to be hosted here. And I would also really like to thank the uh, Shura uh, in charge of uh, running ISOC um, and the organisers of the event, uh, including uh, our president, uh, Sakif, and um, our vice president, Umar. And uh, a special thanks really goes to the events subcommittee and to the events officers, uh, Yusuf and Iman, um, without whom this couldn't have happened today. So uh, thank you all, Jazakallah Khair, for coming. Um, thank you very much, Paul, Jazakallah, and Salaam Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.